Thank you for listening to this message from Forward Ministries. We pray it blesses you, encourages you, and inspires grace in you today. You can visit us online at forwardministries.org. So 1 Corinthians 10, 13 is a scripture. How many of you have you ever been taught or said, God won't put more on you than you can bear? You ever heard that? You ever been taught that? There's a problem. It ain't in the Bible. This is the passage. 1 Corinthians 10, 13. The word temptation here means trial or test or experiment. And we usually relate this to something that's difficult in our lives like a job loss or we're having financial problems or we keep having the same types of marital issues or all these things that happen in our lives that we label as trials. This word temptation is translated as trial in other areas. So it's talking about all those things that we go through that we blame God for or, try to th- or, or we think that God is somehow creating those to teach us lessons. Everything that God has for you is by His Spirit. Everything that God has for you is by grace through faith. So let me show you what I mean. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, No temptation has overtaken you. No trial, no test has overtaken you except which is common to man. And God is faithful. Just say that. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted or go through a trial beyond what you can bear. Now, that does not say God won't put more on you than you can bear, does it? It says he won't let you go through something beyond what you can bear. But when you are tempted, when you experience a trial, he will also provide a way out so that you can endure it. James 1.13, please, sir. This sounds like it's saying that God is allowing the trial or that God is bringing the trial and the way out at the same time, right? where it says, no temptation has taken you. Well, now check this out, James 1.13. When tempted, same word as back then that it says God won't allow you to go through something more than what you can bear. Then he says this, when tempted, no one should say, God is tempting me. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither tempts he anyone. Now this is, this is such a big deal because... 1 Corinthians 10, 13 sounds like he's saying God's bringing the trial. He's allowing this stuff to happen, but he's also providing the way out. But this right here says, don't even say that it's from God. Do you see that? Now, this is review. We've gone over this for a few weeks now, but I'm telling you, man, you have to memorize these concepts because you will find people out there that blame everything on God. God, you know, I've lost my job. What are you doing? God, my grandmother has cancer. Why are you allowing this? Well, you know what? It's not God allowing it. It's not God bringing it in. It's mankind having dominion over this planet. In a sense, God has to allow everything. Everything that you are willing to believe and receive, whether it be from him or the enemy or a product of this world, God allows. But we want the stuff from him. Amen? Do you see that? Don't say that it's from God. You can pull that down for now. So what we're dealing with here is that concept starts off the book of James. We're going through the book of James today. We're going to go through the third chapter. You can flip over on over there if you want to. But James steps in, and and this is kind of what he does. He says, look, stop complaining about these external difficulties that you're going through 
and keep your focus on the Lord because as you go through these things, you will learn patience. It will develop patience within you, but don't say that it's from God. In other words, this struggle that you're going through, keep your eyes on Him because as you do, as you trust the Lord through these things, you will learn how to walk in patience. But don't say that it's from God, the difficulty. Do you see that? I mean, I wish I could just preach that every week because people just don't believe it. I know that because I talk to some of you. <laughs> and and, and I, I mean, people that have been hearing this kind of message for years and years and years, and it's right there, black and white in the Word of God, still will say, well, you know, God's in control. Everything's just going to work out how He's planned it to work out. Well, there are people dying and going to hell separated from Him eternally. You think that's God's plan? I don't think so. There are people starving all over the planet. If you want to see God's perfect, unhindered will, look at the garden before sin and look at eternity. Everything else in between is God co-laboring with mankind and we have dominion and we're messing this place up. So James kind of gets that in perspective. He says, all right, look, you're going through this stuff. Stop complaining because they were, these were people, these were early believers that were going through difficulties. I mean, they were boiling them in oil. They were feeding them to the lions. They were doing just horrific things that the church was experiencing this persecution. And we're going to see today that they must have gotten into complaining. They must have gotten into, you know, uh, I say blaming God, but just complaining about the condition of their lives Blaming it on God because that's what James deals with essentially. Now, tribulation is pressure from the world. Suffering is what you might experience when you stand up for your faith. You might be called of God to go to Africa. And as you're following Him, if you go through persecution or you lose your head in the process and you suffer, God does not use suffering to develop holiness. We know that we're made holy by the once and one time and only sacrifice of the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, I'm packing a bunch of theology in here. A lot of you have heard some of these kinds of things. But it's, it's to get to a point where we realize James is not really dealing with, like we talked about last week, whether or not you're righteous because you do right. He's dealing with you're righteous now that should produce good works within you. It's like James coming into a church and, and, and it's like they should be preaching the gospel and reaching the world. And he's like, what are you, what's going on, fellas? Because all I'm seeing from you is you're complaining about each other. You're favoring the rich people. You're comparing your sins to one another as if your sin is better than their sin or theirs is worse than your sin. He makes the point. He says, look, you can't go back under the law at all because if you want to live that way, you have to remember, if you break one of them, you break all of them. That's the way the law works. You break one, you've broken them all. So for them to compare themselves to each other based on the law, he was trying to get them out of that perspective. So he's actually trying to get them to have a spiritual perspective of who and what they are, but he's addressing their carnal physical behavior. So... You've got Paul, who is the apostle of faith righteousness. There is a faith that has now been revealed apart from works that is by faith. I mean, over and over and over and over, Paul, all throughout Romans and Galatians and all the epistles, hammers the idea, you are righteous by faith through the blood of Christ apart from the works of the law. 
So what Paul does mostly is he approaches righteousness or our relationship with God from a spiritual perspective. In other words, right now in your spirit, if you've received Christ, you are perfect. You are holy. You are cleansed by the blood of Jesus and you stand acceptable before the Father. But your behavior might not reflect that. That's what James is dealing with. Paul deals with the spiritual reality of what and who you are before God. James starts dealing with that reality should be producing a fruit, but he's not seeing it. And he's seeing the, the evidence of them not, that kind of faith not producing the fruit in their tongue really more than anything. Are you with me so far? I'm like, you know, I'm kind of, that's the last three weeks in a nutshell to get to this issue where Paul's trying to get them to a perspective of this faith that you say that you have that makes you righteous, it should also produce good works. Not to make you righteous, not to prove that you're saved, but because that's the nature of the kind of faith that produces righteousness, it produces good works. All right, so James 3. Man, I love that. I, I, I just want people to understand where we are spiritually with the Father before we start trying to deal with our behaviors. The church kind of has it backwards. The church is like, look, you, you're doing this, you're doing this, you're doing this wrong, you got this, this is your sin, this is your sin, this is your sin, this is your sin, and trying to judge whether or not people are acceptable before God based on the behavior. I don't care what the lifestyle is. To approach someone based on their external workings and judge whether or not they're acceptable before the Father that's the last place to go. You've got to go to the heart. You've got to go to the spirit. What do you say about Jesus? What have you done with him? Now let's go from there. Amen? All right. So, James 3. I love this. This, this chapter is kind of entitled, Taming the Tongue. That's the message today. Taming the Tongue. So, <clears throat> James 1. Uh, James 3, chapter 1. Uh, Somebody help me out. James chapter 3, verse 1. Here we go. And you can put the NIV up there. Uh, I'm not sure what you have. I'm reading from the NIV. Not many of you should become teachers, my fellow believers, because you know that we who teach will be judged more strictly. All right, leave that one up there if you would. Man, how many of you that have ever taught the Word of God, this has brought fear to you? Honestly, let's just think about this for a minute. See, this is why we have to know the gospel. Because when you run across scriptures like this, when you run across words like this, and you see the word judgment, isn't it odd that every time you see the word, some people see the word judgment, it immediately makes you start examining whether or not you've been good enough, and it starts to kind of paint a picture of God being mad at you? It's like, oh my gosh, God's going to judge me for if I teach wrong. Jesus was judged in your behalf. Jesus took the full penalty of breaking the law on the cross. Jesus was made a curse and received the entire brunt of the punishment for breaking the law within his body. Not only that, but he bore your sicknesses so that we could exchange that for healing. He bore your sin nature and passed into the grave so that we could exchange and have his righteous nature. The cross is a, is a divine exchange of natures, of God saying, you can't do it, 
I'm going to come down there and manifest myself perfectly, shed human perfect blood, the life is in the blood, so that I can bring human blood back into heaven, so that we can bring spiritual blood back into the earth. Life, the Spirit of God. Then we receive the Spirit of God because one factor is Jesus was judged for us. And then we read something like this, and it's like you forget the gospel. This, it's like the cross never happened for some people when they read this. You know what I'm saying? I mean, seriously. This is not talking about God judging you if you teach something wrong. Jesus was judged for you. This is talking about people judging you. Yes. It's just like when, when uh, Jesus talks, judge, judge not that you be not judged. Because men will reap. You know, men will compound the judgment back to you. It's not talking about God. Jesus took it all. Say, Jesus took my judgment. Jesus took my judgment. Amen. All right. So, I hope that clears a little something up for you. The reason you receive a stricter judgment is because those of us that teach, we stand up and we run our mouths just long enough, we're probably going to say something wrong. <laughs> probably. I promise you, I'm not going to say everything right. There's going to be stuff that you're like, all right, that ain't right. And you're probably right. That's what it's talking about. It's talking about men, talking about people. All right, verse 2. We all stumble in many ways. Anyone who is never at fault in what they say is perfect, able to keep their whole body in check. Wow. Really? You mean what I say? And the word perfect here is mature. You know, that's, that's incredible. If you want to truly display the mature character of who God is in you, it's not about how accurately you prophesy. It's not about how many miracles you have. There are two marks of spirituality coming to maturity in the Word, and it's how much peace you walk in no matter what you're in the middle of, and can you control your tongue from the heart, not just you just, you know, discipline your, you just your mouth, but your heart bears fruit to a tongue that controls itself. That's where we're getting to is ultimately we're going to look at the heart. So, you know, it's imp it, this, isn't that amazing? But then it says that if you can uh, control your tongue, then you're able to keep your whole body in check. Now, don't raise your hand, but how many of you have these repetitive issues that if you could just control your body, if you could just control your feet, if you could just control your eyes, your hands, whatever it is that gets you in trouble, it starts with your tongue. Yeah, yeah. This is what it says. It's like, I don't understand how that works. Well, you know what? The Bible says it right here. So it probably works. Let's see what else he's talking about here. Verse 3. When we put bits into the horses' mouths, or, or bits into the mouths of the horses to, take, to make them obey us, we can turn the whole animal. Or take ships as an example. Although they are so large and driven by strong winds, they are steered by a very small rudder whenever the pilot, wherever the pilot wants to go. You're talking about a, a piece of metal in a horse's mouth, which is what's tied to the reins, and you turn it and the horse will turn. And you're talking about a rudder on a ship that's small, and it turns and it guides the entire ship where it's going. No matter where the wind is coming from, no matter what the external imposition is on this ship 
It's how you set that rudder that determines where the ship's going to go, not the external wind. It's the setting of the sail and the setting of the rudder that determines where that ship goes, not the wind itself. We shouldn't be thrown about by these winds because we have this rudder of faith evidenced in our tongue that keeps us on course of trusting God no matter what happens in our lives. See, it's a spiritual approach, not a carnal approach. We have this carnal approach of, let me look at the world and look at the condition of my job, my relationships, my finances, and, and try to decipher the will of God. Don't we? It's like, okay, this happened. That must have happened because God is trying to do something. God, what are you trying to do? What are you trying to teach me? It's like, no. He works on you with His Word, by His Spirit, in your heart. Now, He might call you into something that you walk through externally that creates pressure or suffering, but it's not the suffering that generates the holiness. It's His Spirit that makes you holy. And as He calls you, you might walk through some suffering. But it's not to bring you something spiritual. It's to glory, bring Him glory on this planet through your life. Does that make sense? I mean, asceticism says that you can gain an ounce of spiritual enlightenment or an aspect of salvation by suffering in the flesh. You can't do anything in the flesh to produce salvation. Any aspect of salvation. There's not one aspect of spiritual salvation that God gives you by His Spirit that is to manifest in the... Now remember, salvation means healing, wholeness, provision, deliverance, restoration, guidance, prosperity. It does mean that. You know, I'm not talking about we all need to be flying in jets, but you know we don't need to be broke either. That's not God's... what He's wanting. It doesn't bring Him glory. So, all right. Let's keep going here. Um, and and oh, the, other, the other point, you think about a bit, right? You think about, you think about a rudder and a bit. Those things in and of themselves are not anywhere near as powerful as the horse and the ship itself, right? In other words, the thing that it's steering, it is less powerful than that thing. However, if it's set right, it will steer it. It will turn it. So what we do with our tongues, and some of us have been taught, depending on you know, just how charismatic you are or just what region of the country you've, your favorite preachers live in, I don't know, it gets all, it's interesting. But some of us have been taught that your tongue kind of has to get up on top of this problem and force this problem into submission, and you have to confess this thing hard enough to make this thing obey you. You ever been taught that? It's like, my, I'm going to whip this thing into shape with my tongue. In other words, you wake up in the morning, you've got your list of confessions, and somehow you think magically these words are going to fly off the page through your lips onto this planet and make things happen. Amen. That's what I'm no. <laughs> we think that. We've been taught that. But the problem is, when your heart's not... This is the, this is the problem that Israelites had. So many times they'd been given a promise, a promise and they tried to believe it without mixing it with faith in their hearts and they got frustrated toward God, and they hardened their heart toward God, and they couldn't walk into what He was trying to lead them into. In other words, it was all intellectual and physical and carnal, not in their heart, which is the gateway to where God lives within you. Am I, am I, I know I had, some, uh, I had some strong coffee this morning. I'm running 90 miles an hour, but I think you're with me. So, 
Let's just keep going. Verse 5. Likewise, the tongue is a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a great forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. Uh-oh. Now, this is James, right? James can be a bit harsh, if you haven't noticed that. All right, let me just, I'll say what I'm, let me finish this verse. It corrupts the whole body, sets the whole course of one's life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. All kinds of animals, birds, reptiles, and sea creatures are being tamed and have been tamed by mankind. You know, I wonder if while he's preaching, it's like they've got these things and he's pointing to the stuff. Maybe they had these kinds of animals in their culture there and he's making an illustration. He's like, you guys can tame these lizards over here, but you can't tame your own tongue. I mean, he's a fiery preacher. So verse 8, he says, but no human being can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil full of deadly poison. Arr. Now, I'm not saying this is not inspired. I'm not attacking James. I'm just saying, realize this is a human speaking, okay? He's making a point. He's trying to show you just how powerful it is when you open your mouth to the degree that it, it affects your entire life. Your tongue sets on fire the course of nature, or however it says it here in the, in the NIV. Uh, the word course of nature can be translated as wheel of life. Or in other words, the cycles that you go through, the course of, of nature that you walk in this planet. You can, you can pull that down there, Philip. So what he's saying, and, and if you read commentaries, there's a few different ways you kind of go into, you dig into the Greek, and then you, you understand the, Hebrew, the Hebrewism behind this kind of phrase. And what they're saying is, over the course of your life, your tongue is going to affect where you're going. Then it also has to do with the cycles that we go through. How many of you have recognized cycles in your life? You know, for you, maybe every year it's this, every two years, every five years, good or bad. You know, I, I know some of you have been through some things, and like four or five years later, it just it seems to cycle right back around again. And you're like, where did that come from? I, I, thought, I thought I was done with that, you know? Well, maybe it has something to do with where we are with our mouths, but not just because our words are magic, but because your mouth is a reflection of what's going on in your heart. I, I've said this before, but we're really good at praying when we're desperate. We're really good at seeking God when there's trouble. But what do you do when everything's going well? Do you continue to pray for your future? Do you continue to ask for wisdom? I mean, when do you ask for wisdom? Only when you're in trouble? Or do you ask for wisdom when everything's going really, really good too? You know, it's kind of like, I don't care what's going on out here, good or bad. Our mindset should be, I will acknowledge you and expect that you will lead my paths and I will build a life of biblical, consistent, responsible decisions, no matter if it's going good or bad, and I will steady course walk through this life. We slack off when it's easy. Some of us have been taught that you get too comfortable, God's going to bring a little pain into you. God's going to bring a little suffering. He's going to prune you and take that job away from you so you can learn. 
man, if God was like that, I'm done. Let's just shut this church down. I'm not serving that kind of God. So I, I, I made this point, and I want to say it again. It is just as spiritual to go through the book of Proverbs and read how to treat people, how to manage your finances, how to stay out of debt, how to deal with... It. It's interesting. If you, if you have employees underneath you, you can read in Proverbs and the scriptures that talk about servants and slaves and translate that to employees. I don't mean your employees are your slaves, but the principle of how you treat people that work for you and, and, and build your life on that and make decisions based on that. That is every bit as spiritual as waking up and hearing the audible voice of God every day to tell you where you're supposed to go that day. Amen. Because it is God-inspired, God-breathed, and His Word is alive. And He will bring that Word to life within you and show you how to build a life. I mean, we've got this weird concept that it's like more spiritual to hear something out here. And, and, and because we've been, we've, paint, we've been painted that picture that we're supposed to fit into that version of spirituality, and we can't get it to work because we can't hear the voice of God, then we resort to, you know, maybe a particular kind of bird does it for you. You're sitting on your back porch and you're having your coffee and here comes the bird. And it's, <gasps> Now I know that I'm supposed to do this. I'm not trying to make fun of you. I mean, I, I'm really not. It's kind of like, kind of like God, give me a word. You're going to hell. Well, I don't think I want to read that one. You know. I mean, again, I'm not, I'm really not trying to belittle. But man, we have the living spirit of God within us. Why do we think it's more spiritual? to discern something like that than it is to read the Word of God and say, well, the Bible says this. I'm gonna, I'm, every time I deal with finances in this way, I'm going to do it this way. It's just as spiritual because spirit is life-giving, not external mystical phenomenon. You, you know what I mean? Like signs and wonders are supposed to be more spiritual. No, it, that's just, it's just a different aspect of the way that the spirit manifests. All right, I think I've made the point, but I hope that sets you free a little bit because, man, we've been painted a picture of what it looks like to be spiritual, and it's, it kind of looks a little like irresponsibility to me. Yes. Immaturity. Religion. Works. works. Makes you feel like you're less than. Yes. Makes you feel like you're lacking something. Verse 9, with the tongue we praise our Lord and Father, and with it we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth comes praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters. This should not be. That's James' version of stop it. <laughs> Verse 11, can both fresh water and salt water flow from the same spring? My brothers and sisters, can a fig tree bear olives and a grapevine bear figs? Neither... Can a salt spring produce fresh water? You, 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 me too. I mean, you know, we cannot expect to be led by God and see his promises built into our lives when we're only speaking carnal realities.
Now, on the flip side of that, that doesn't mean that we're going to jump into the word police, the confession police, where it's like, oh, don't say that. You're going to negative confession. You're going to have this. You know, the, the, we've kind of been taught that God used words to create everything. No. God's spirit created everything. The words were spoken to reflect what his spirit was doing. The words were an expression of the, ten the intention that his spirit was doing. I, you know, I've thought, I've thought a lot about this because we still have this kind of concept that thinks that somehow we can just speak these words and they go out and supposed to make things. You know, prayer for a lot of people is kind of like magic. It's like an incantation that like, okay, God said this, so I'm going to get my list. I'm going to get my scriptures and every day I'm going to wake up and I'm going to read these confessions. But inside you're scared to death. And inside you are wondering if this is really going to happen. You know, Sally has a testimony. She said she was confessing, 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 and God said, you don't really believe that. It's like, okay, God, but I'm quoting your word. Yeah, but you don't believe that. Whether or not you believe it determines whether or not you're going to see it manifest and built into your life, not whether or not you know the Scripture. That's the difficulty that a lot of us have. It's the same issue over and over and over with the Israelites, with every believer on the planet. You can know the Bible verse by verse, front to back, and never experience the manifestation of the Spirit of God in your life if it's not mixed with faith in your heart. Not that your faith makes it happen, but that your faith accesses spiritual truth and opens that door for God to build His promises into your life. Now, don't get caught up on opens the door. You know, I mean, we've got words fall flat when we start talk, talking to try, trying to talk about spiritual reality, but you understand the concept. So many times the children of Israel were made a promise. They would start to follow God, and then they would stop, and they would not experience the promise. And ultimately, when he got to the end of them, some of them dying off, and then some of them being able to go into the promised land after he split the second river, he said you have limited the Holy One of Israel. And he kind of paints this picture of you started complaining, it caused you to harden your heart toward God, and because your heart was hard toward God, you couldn't mix faith with the promise, and you, didn't, you couldn't enter into what I was promising. It, you, they, they limited the Holy One of Israel. Yeah, but God's sovereign. He can do anything He wants to do. Well, yeah, in that spiritual dimension, but in this physical dimension, we are co-laboring with Him. That's kind of a whole other topic, but the point being is, and I want to make a couple of statements and I'll close with this, because we think that just because we know the truth, it's going to set us free. But the word know is actually the word experience, and the way that we experience it is we get our heart connected to it. Amen. And I, you know, I do this, but it's why, it, a lot of, it's why we have the kind of worship that we do because it's not just about glorifying and exalting God and singing about how much He loves us and how much we love Him, but we want to take moments to create those meditative states where you actually connect to the Spirit that's in you that's seeking to manifest in your life. You know, the manifestation is what we're after. Yes. The manifestation is like Imagine that this is a giant brick wall, like it's a dam holding back a water reservoir back here, and there's something over here that needs this water.
This wall is our heart. The, the water is there. Sometimes there's little holes in the, in the wall here and we're letting a little bit of water through here. But man, I'm telling you, you can break the wall down and stop limiting God and the Spirit of God does what He does. You don't have to tell God what to do, where to go. He knows. His, it's like water. Water goes. So, let me read these. Faith does not deny the reality of the problem or the sickness. It denies its right to exist in your body or in your life. See, because what we've made kind of faith out to be, it's like, <coughs> I'm not sick, it's just a symptom. <laughs> really? Because it kind of looks like you're sick to me. I mean, there's a tumor on your scan here. You're not sick? Are you sure? Oh, I'm just a symptom. It's just a lying symptom. Okay, well, yeah, you can play that game if you want to, but you got a problem. Faith doesn't deny the problem. It just acknowledges a greater reality. Amen. Faith acknowledges the problem, but is focused on the greater spiritual reality. By His stripes, I am healed. God is my comforter. God is my provider. God is my strong tower. If I lack wisdom, He will give it to me. Anything that I say that if I believe shall come to pass. Those are greater spiritual realities. Now, you may never connect to those greater spiritual realities if your heart is not at a place of confident faith toward Him, willing to do whatever the process is that it looks like to trust Him. You know, I really wish we had better words to describe that type of spiritual connection and the trust and how it manifests and all that, but I think that's where the church has gotten in trouble, religion has gotten in trouble because it tries, to, it tries to define that moment of spirit manifesting to physical and we've labeled all these things and there's all these books that are written on seven steps of how to do God's part, you know. So we kind of have to just be comfortable with that's why we focus a lot in here on painting a picture of the, real, the true nature of God. He's loving. He has good plans for you. He can be trusted. He's not hiding a hand back here waiting to smack you on the back of the head when you miss it. He's not holding your sins against you. He has given you everything that He has by His Spirit in Christ, and He has planted Christ into you, waiting to bear fruit. And it just takes yielding to that and trusting that. But one way that you can determine what's actually in your heart is look at what's coming out of your mouth. And that's really what James is getting at. He's after their hearts, but he's dealing with their words in the process. So faith doesn't deny the problem. It denies the right to negate God's promises in your life. Faith doesn't ignore sin. Faith doesn't minimize sinful behavior. Faith accesses the grace that empowers you to overcome that sinful behavior. Does that make sense? All right. So you can affirm the physical reality or you can nourish the spiritual reality. I mean, which is more greater, that which is going to last forever or that which is not going to last forever? You know, look not at the things which are seen but at the things which are unseen because the things that which are seen are temporary but the things that are not seen are eternal. What is not seen about you is that you are healed. You are continually provided for. 
You are God's child. You are hidden with Christ in God, sealed with His Spirit, and blood of Jesus painted all over the heavenly holy of holies to testify of that covenant that you have been gra engrafted into. Man, mm, that has to be our reality when we open our mouths. And if it's not, you'll know. Jesus kind of wraps it up this way. Let me, let's look at what Jesus had to say about this. Luke 6, 45. If you flip over to Luke 6, 45, and I'll just I'll say this in the process. You know, we all know in Proverbs 18, uh, 20 and 21, a man's belly shall be satisfied with the fruit of his mouth, and with the increase of his lips shall he be filled. Verse 21, death and life are in the power of the tongue, and those that love it shall eat the fruit thereof. Put that in regular English, and what he's saying is, you will eat the fruit of what your tongue loves to empower, whether it be life or death. In fact, you are currently eating the fruit of what your tongue has given power to. But your tongue is directly inspired by the beliefs of your heart, so the tongue is only an indicator of what's really going on in my heart. That's why God got to uh, Sally's heart, and she's going off in the in the going off at the mouth. You know that sounds bad, but she's running her mouth over there, and God says, "You don't believe that." Ooh, wait a minute! I thought I did. I, I, I'm willing to believe that. I have determined that I believe what's in your word and I see it in your word. But really deep down within my heart, do I really fully expect your spirit to bear fruit and change me? Or do I just know that that's what a good Christian is supposed to do? You know, this is about, it's about relationship. I mean, it, it's, about, it's about his spirit having his way to really transform you. And you cannot do it on your own. You, you just can't. Jesus says this, a good man, did you have that up there, Luke 640? Thank you. A good man brings good things out of the good stored up in his heart. Wait a minute. I thought God was in control. I thought God was making everything happen in my life. Well, you know what? You bring up good things out of a heart that stores up good stuff. An evil man brings evil things out of the evil stored up in his heart. For the mouth speaks what the heart is full of. And I ask, what is your heart full of? You know, based on what your mouth speaks. This is not about behaving properly and fitting into the niche of I'm a good Christian that knows how to control my tongue. You use observation of your mouth to know the condition of your heart. Because your heart, out of the heart flow all the issues of life. Whatsoever a man believes in his heart shall come to pass. I think I made that up. That's not actually the way it says that. Anyway, the other one says, <laughs> as a man thinks in his heart, so is he. That's it. I'm willing to admit when I make stuff up. He speaks what his mouth is full of. What is your heart full of? How does your heart get full of other stuff? Not through religious behavior, fervent prayer, external law-keeping, but how you see God, how you expect God to work in your life, how you, what, you, 
what you meditate on in light of what Jesus has done for you, what you meditate on and what kind of being you really are deep down. You've got problems, you've got external behaviors, you just cannot help it, you keep doing the wrong thing. If you see yourself that way and you speak that stuff and you beat yourself up, you will keep doing the wrong things. You have to change the picture that you see of yourself on the inside and it has to match what Jesus has done in you. Then out of everything else flows what you want in your life. We work so hard to try to make things happen in our lives. And God is saying, look, I've given that to you already by my spirit. Let me build it into your life. Rest. What is, what is it, Matthew? I want to read this. This is just really, it's, it's in the uh, Amplified. Matthew 11. Somebody have an Amplified on you? I don't have this in my notes, but I'm just really feeling. Forgive me, I bet this is, this is going to mean something. And you've probably heard this. Uh, 24, I think. 28. It's in the message. You've heard this. You've heard it read before. Matthew 11, 28 through 30 in the message. <clears throat> Are you tired? Worn out? Burned out on religion? This is Jesus speaking. Come to me, get away with me, and you'll recover your life. I'll show you how to take a real rest. Walk with me and work with me. Watch how I do it. Learn the unforced rhythms of grace. I won't lay anything heavy or ill-fitting on you. Keep company with me, and you'll learn to live freely and lightly. Wow. Praise God. Father, we thank you so much for that promise. Jesus, we know that in this world there's tribulation. But we know that walking with you, no matter what's going on, can be easy and light because we're your children. We want to be taught by your Spirit to just flow in that unforced rhythm of grace, to walk with you, to, be, to have your character developed within us by your Spirit to have your wisdom manifesting through us because your word is rooted deep within our hearts. We are committed to getting your word in our hearts. To, to, you've already given us a heart that has your word written within it, but externally we want to agree with that so that we don't hinder you any longer in our lives, that the world knows what a completely spirit-led Christian looks like in my life. Do you receive that? That's your prayer? Thank you, Lord.